Welcome to Alpern's Cuban Abrass. I'm Carson Sestule. This is Fangraphs Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Studio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. This is his weekly Monday appearance occurring on a Monday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition. This edition of the program, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Eric Thames has produced a home runs to games ratio above one in recent days. His success in the early going is not a great surprise for those amongst us who regarded his projections during the season, whether it be Zips or Steamer. What does Thames' early success tell us about projections from foreign leagues? And perhaps how much ought we to weigh the performances of those players, for example, currently excelling in the Korean Baseball League, of which Thames was a part in recent years? Cameron and I also discuss launch angle, who's producing the ideal one of those, the plurality of body types in Major League Baseball, in particular relative to other sports, and Adam Frazier, with regard to whom Dave Cameron admits that I am right. I am right. Dave Cameron also makes this comment about Eric Hosmer, which is also applicable to every person forced to endure the difficulties of life. Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably got a, if it's not broke, don't fix it approach, not knowing that it actually is broken. That philosophical aphorism and others like it what's to follow, what I'm forced to contractually say right now is that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. You can show your support for Fangraphs and the hot, hot content that site provides. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, you can obtain an ad-free yearly membership to allow you to browse fangraphs.com unencumbered by bannered ads banner ads let's call them banner ads and not bannered ads you can browse fangraphs.com unencumbered by banner ads facilitating both faster loading speeds and also freedom from the distortive effects of advertising fangraphs ad free yearly membership is what it's called click on the link in the post for this edition of the program okay we are done with that promotional material. Let's move on to our conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? This Fangraphs audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. You probably don't want to begin by talking about the uh, Colonial Athletic Conference game that I went to between Northeastern and College of Charleston. We can talk about it. I will know nothing and never have heard of any of the players. Do Can you guess the best player ever to come out of Northeastern University? No. <laughs> I can't. I can't name one player to ever come out of Northeastern University. Well, if you named one player, it would probably also be the best player. Okay. It was Carlos Pena. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was okay. He was pretty good. He was okay. Yeah. He had to... He had... You know, he was a popular player before... Well, he, I mean, like most baseball players, he played in the league before, um, obviously, some of the like the batted ball metrics. Uh, and But I, I don't know why. I never really made any sort of experiment out of... Attempting to essentially reverse engineer the the like the stats of those guys, like what like in terms of like launch angle, in terms of you know like fly ball versus ground ball percentage. Actually, his ground ball percentages are all are all recorded. Yeah, um, I mean he played in the during the two thousands after we had what well, we got ground ball data back to O two. So yeah, right. Yeah, so he's I guess so he's present in that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of characterizing his approach. 
I don't know. His best seasons were very good. Um, or his best season, I guess, was very yeah. good. He had he one had year one, where he had like 45 homers, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, with the Rays. Yeah. And, the, and he, I remember him. I, I thought I remembered him for some time with the Cubs, but he actually only played with the Cubs for one year, it looks like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was fine. He had nearly 20 wins, worth nearly 20 wins over yeah. his career. He had power. He was a good defensive first baseman. He drew walks. He yeah. also struck out a lot and had, what, like the most uppercutty swing you could possibly imagine? Yeah, what do you think? So let's. I want to ask you a question about launch angle for a second. What is – I assume is there is a correlation. Do we know if there's a correlation between uh, how uppercutty, as you suggest, how uppercutty a, a batter swing looks and then also the launch angle it produces, the average launch angle? Yeah, I think I think there's no question. Ryan Schimpf, I think, has the highest launch angle of any hitter in baseball, and he basically swings like he's trying to hit something in the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or hit something from his toes to the sky, something like that. He has a he has the most pronounced uppercut of any hitter in baseball, and he has the highest launch angle of any hitter in baseball. If we were to, if you were to sort the like a leaderboard uh, by launch angle, average launch angle. First of all, what are the what are the numbers at the top? Uh, I think ships up like almost at forty degrees, like high thirties. Oh, that seems quite high because I. Yeah. It seems like the golden range is something like. What for launch angle? Something like twenty-five to forty or something? No, I think Tango said it's like twelve to twenty-eight is the kind of like that's the sweet spot in like you either want to be at close to twelve, which is a lot of line drives, or close to twenty-eight, which is like a lot of home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you're in that twenty range, that means like your range is probably you know on, when you miss hit the ball down, you're at twelve. That's line drives. When you miss hit the ball up, or you know hit the, not miss hit, but like. When you make solid contact up, then you're at 28, and that's home runs. That's, like, ideal, you know, depending on how hard you hit the ball anyway. Something in that range is generally considered, uh, I, uh, you know, performance maximizing. So the like the hitters that we've, you know, typically cover, who uh, discuss in the context of, you know, changing their swing mechanics, it, it, do we sense that they're shooting for that, you know, like that 20, 20 degree angle then? Yeah, I mean, I think what, like Chris Bryant, uh, maybe his rookie year was like, he thought his launch angle was too high, cause he was like mid thirties, and then he like got it down to like mid thirties minus one or something. He's a, he's like way up there, he's at 34 or something. Okay. Uh, so he's also quite high. You can be a really good hitter while being outside of that range, and there's obviously, you know, really good hitters like Christian Yelich, who was like his three or something. Like, it's not guaranteed that you have to be in this, you know, 12 to 28 range, uh, in order to be a good hitter. But it seems like for most hitters, that's kind of the sweet spot is either line drives around 12 degrees or home runs around 28 degrees. What if you were to take the, what would it mean if a player, or it says you take two, uh, two players that each have, say, an average of 20 degrees? Yeah. Um, one of them hits at 20 degrees every time. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> oh, that's bad. That's, to hit that's bad. Yeah, you twenty degrees is a little bit of like a hole in between. Like uh, the average of twenty works out because you assume there's a distribution with some at twelve and some at twenty eight, and those are good. Uh, but if you hit the ball at twenty degrees every time, that's not great. Unless you, I mean, if you're hitting the ball 120 miles an hour or something, that's fine. But uh, right, yeah. I guess you assume that that's not happening every time. Yeah, right. Like at, at normal, reasonable human exit velocities, uh, I think a twenty degree launch angle gets less production than either twelve or high twenties. Right, because and a twelve could be like ten, eleven, you know, close to ten, close to thirty, do better than close to twenty. Right, and and again, as you as you mentioned, probably uh, there's some uh, it's it's reliant on the on the exit velocity to some degree. 
Yeah. Because if you're doing any of these things at like 115 miles per hour, then you're probably doing all right. You're probably fine, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, exit velocity by itself is not like Eric Hosmer has the hardest hit ball of the year at 118 miles an hour, and I think it was a double play. So, you know, you can hit the ball hard and have bad outcomes. Uh, but if you hit the ball hard like all the time, most of the times they're probably going to be hits. Well, isn't this one of the challenges with Eric Hosmer is the fact that he actually does hit the ball quite hard, but yeah. he doesn't really hit the right place? This is the fun thing. It's like Eric Hosmer, from a scouting perspective, is um, a guy who could be a really great hitter. Eric Hosmer, from a results perspective, is objectively not a great hitter. <laughs> like His career WRC Plus is like 105 or something, and mm-hmm. he's, again, off to a bad start this year, and one of the reasons the Royals offense is struggling. Uh, you know, I've like, kicked around over the weekend. I didn't end up writing it, but I've like got this post in mind that I might write at some point uh, about how different Eric Hosmer really is from Mitch Moreland, because there's talk that Eric Hosmer is going to get like $100 million as a free agent this winter, and Mitch Moreland got $5 million as a free agent last winter. And if you like actually look at them, they're not that different from a results perspective. But Hosmer has some ability that he has not yet tapped into, which we can see in exit velocity. He hits the ball hard all over the place. He hits the ball hard in the air. He hits the ball hard on the ground. If he can figure out how to stop hitting the ball on the ground, which other hitters have figured out how to do, he could be much better than he has been to date. But as long as he's hitting ground balls as a slow-footed first baseman, this isn't going to work for him. Wait, is there a probability that he will sign a $100 million contract? I I think uh, it depends on how his year goes. So if he has like a standard Eric Hosmer year where he hits 280 and he hits 25 home runs and, you know, has his normal year, I think he'll he'll be around there. For one, he's going to be 28, so he's a younger free agent. And there are teams who will pay for the talent and think they can fix the swing angle. Um, and, you know, he's like a bit of an average major league player to this point even with a lot of ground balls. So, you know, the average major leaguers go for like 15 to $16 million a year in the free agent market anyway, uh, especially younger ones who don't have health problems. So I, I don't think it's out of the range of possibility that he gets $100 million if he has a solid year. If he has a breakout year and he hits 35 home runs, then he'll get, you know, $150 million. He's going to get paid something uh, unless he, you know, hits 150 all year, which seems I guess unlikely. It, well, you mentioned that, I mean, if he's still going to get paid pretty well, does he have necessarily a lot of incentive to to experiment with his swing at this point? Yeah, but it's one of the interesting things is like is Eric Hosmer's perceived success and the fact that kind of, you know, traditional metrics, RBIs and the Royals winning the World Series, uh, these kinds of evaluations have pushed a narrative that Eric Hosmer's already a star, and I think Eric Hosmer probably believes that, and his agent is certainly pushing that idea, that like Eric Hosmer doesn't have to do anything to get any better, he's already a great player. Objectively, that's not true. Like, Eric Hosmer is not a great player based on results on the field. Like, that's it's not a defensible argument. So... I wonder if Eric Hosmer uh, had a different set of similarly valuable skills if he would have been encouraged to uh, just make some improvements and become a kind of live up to his talent level. Like, it, you know, he was a first round pick, uh, and, you know, clearly the exit velocity numbers show that this is a guy who can hit the ball hard and could hit for power uh, if he had a different distribution of batted balls. But I wonder if it's just because the Royals won and he got a bunch of RBIs that he has not been compelled to make the changes that he probably needs to make. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I guess if no one's been forcing him to and he's getting paid sufficiently and he's still putting up decent numbers, right. there's not really a lot of reason for him to change. Right. I, mean, I, w- I wouldn't because, because yeah. he probably says like, well, you know, if I hit 35 home runs instead of 25, that would be great. But if – but. At that point, like, the risk is also that he's not Eric Hosmer anymore. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably got a, if it's not broke, don't fix it approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, not knowing that it actually is broken. Like, uh, as a first baseman with a the career WRC plus before one, below 110, he's not very good. But I don't, I don't think Eric Cosmer knows that he's not very good, and I don't think the people around him are telling him that he's not very good. And, uh, it's, it's one of those interesting things. It was like, he might be getting, uh, you know, misserviced based on outdated ideas of what a good baseball player looks like. Yeah. Uh, so a couple, returning to a couple questions about launch angle, which was not uh, questions that I had prepared to ask you, but I find that I'm curious about the answers now. So we will continue. Uh, oh yeah. So you, so yeah, we did, you did answer this question, maybe not directly, but implicitly, uh, which is, <clears throat> is it better to hit 20 degrees all the time or is it better to hit, to have a wider distribution? And I think you said, you you say wider distribution is good. Yeah, a wider distribution if you're centered at 20 degrees, yeah. I mean, I think, What if you're yeah. centered at 12 degrees? Uh, then you might want to be narrower distribution because 12 degrees are line drives. So if you could have as many line drives as possible, that's great. And if you had a wide distribution at 12 degrees, that would mean some of them are at zero, which is ground ball, and mm-hmm. some of them are at 20, which is generally a, like a fly out. Uh, and so, depending on exit velocity, but like, you have better results at 12 or 10 or whatever than you would at zero or 20. So at that point, you'd want to have a narrow spread. Okay. All right. And, um, oh, although maybe then it would be, if, if you knew, like if you, if there was a, if there was a machine that was pumping it out yeah. at 12 degrees, then it would, it would probably be pretty easy to, to defend against it, right? You would just put all the guys, like all, all your players, like 200 feet out. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think the trick is, uh, right. So if you knew that every ball was going to come off of a, you know, batting machine essentially at 12 degrees, you wouldn't need an infield anymore. You would just mm-hmm. have a short outfield. <laughs> so I, originally I was going to say you'd need like 15 feet tall infielders, but right, you could just move them back and have guys <laughs> playing on the warning track and then like a set at like shallow outfield and just never have an infield. And, uh, the, the hitter would be frustrated with that alignment. And I think at that point, Banning that shift might might actually be okay. Wait, you you said a fifteen foot infielder. I don't. There there are no fifteen foot humans, of course. But it, right. I, um, uh, I was th- it was thinking you don't really see a lot of, uh, you don't see. Let's see. I feel like in baseball there is a position for most body types. Um, whereas like so basketball, obviously, like unless you are an exceptional ball handler and shooter, right? Yeah. Unless you're like you know Allen Iverson, Steph Curry, it's Did very. You just call Allen Iverson an exceptional shooter. He's an exceptional ball handler and an exceptional scorer. Didn't he like lead the league in turnovers like every year? He well, I I don't know if he led it in turnover percentage though, like relative to usage. Okay, I don't. Yeah. I've been I watched, I've watched Allen Iverson play a decent amount. I don't remember him as a, as an exceptional ball handler, and he certainly was not an exceptional shooter. No, he was an exceptional ball handler. He was fast. I, he was an, he was, yeah, and he was a great scorer. I mean, he, he scored a fast. lot. He was right. fast. Okay. Yeah. But he was right. exceptionally quick. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fine. The point is it doesn't matter. <laughs> you need to have some sort of elite skill to succeed if you're under six feet tall in the yeah. NBA. Right. <clears throat> um, of course, there are a lot of um, baseball players who are under six feet tall. They're not. They're, most of them are not starting pitchers. Do you feel as though – what do you think baseball rates in terms of the diversity of body types – that it allows? Uh, probably up there. I mean, in the Cesar Hernandez post I published right before we started podcasting, I included a quote from the Sam Miller piece at ESPN last week where he quoted Bill Veck, who was talking about how baseball is by far the the last remaining bastion of, like, democracy and body type 
uh, of all the sports. Like you have to be seven foot six, I think in his words, to play in the NBA, and you have to be that width to play in the NFL. It's obviously hyperbole, uh, mm-hmm. but like the NFL sorts for uh, weight in general. Uh, and the NBA sorts for height in general, where in baseball you can have, you know, a Jose Altuve facing off against, uh, Luke Von Meal, right? Like you have almost like a two foot difference and like you have, you know, uh, really, uh, large human beings, uh, who can just, you know, DH or play first base or something and, uh, and then you have, you know, really slender skinny guys like Ichiro who have like 0% body fat. So, um, yeah, it does seem like baseball is probably the sport that Almost any shape can play. Right. Yeah. Actually, recently, or it was pretty early in the season. There's a there's a video of of Aaron Judge yeah. waiting at home plate for Ronald uh, Torres. Yeah. Torres, who had just yeah. who it was actually Torres who just did a home run. Right. Uh, but it really looked like Aaron Judge was just greeting his like his kid brother at right. home plate. Yeah, the bat like, boy. Like got a yeah. ceremonial <laughs> run around the bases yeah. or something. Torres has Torres has a diminutive frame. A judge is gigantic. He's a, he looks like a different species of person. I, I think, I, like, he really is playing the wrong sport, right? Like, with the last name Judge, and you're 6'6 and ripped like he is, like, he should be a linebacker who just destroys people. Like, I mean, you can just easily see, like, Joe Buck being like, the judge is in, and some guy, like, hobbles off with a concussion. <laughs> I know, it's true. I'm glad that you put those in the, in... Joe Buck's words, his, uh, how we relish his concussion. <laughs> yeah, Joe Buck, big fan of the concussion. <laughs> big fan of the concussion. All right, very good. If I sort, uh, all right, so back to the conversation about launch angles. That's, so far, that's our thread. I want to yeah, be clear okay. about that, David Cameron. Right. I'm returning to that. Okay. okay? If, we so, if I sort by launch angle, uh, highest to lowest, what, a, what can I make, what, what assumptions can I make beyond the fact that these are, like in terms of output for these players? That's what I want to say. High launch angle, more home runs. Low eight, okay. launching on more ground balls. I mean, these are pretty okay. pretty simple, right. uh, but not necessarily more production, right? So, like Christian Yelich on a very low launch angle, you'd rather have him than Ryan Schimpf. So, uh, you're gonna get way more swing and miss at higher launch angles too. This is really the trade-off: is you can try and hit the ball in the air as much as possible, but you're going to swing and miss in order to try and do that. You're basically creating a hole in your swing because you have this big loop thing, and it's hard to uh, make solid. Continuous contact. So the guys who have really high launch angles also strike out a lot. And the guys who have really low launch angles generally don't strike out that often. So it's really that power contact trade-off that we've known exists in baseball forever. Just now we can define it in slightly different terms. Now you do hear um, with this conversations about swings. You hear players wanting to get on paths with the ball. They want yeah. to get their bat on the path of the ball very quickly. Do we know typically if it's like you know if it's a fastball coming in from a right-handed pitcher with a pretty standard, you know, high three-quarters arm slot or whatever. Like, do we know what what uh, essentially the, the equivalent of the launch angle that is? I assume it's slightly positive because there's always it's a little it's a slight uppercut I think to right. to swing at a ball that's coming at you. Do we know what that is? Yeah, I think uh, so. Josh Donaldson had like the video that got tweeted out last week or something like that. I'm not sure when he recorded it, but I, I saw it got sent around Twitter. Where it's basically like two and a half minutes of Josh Donaldson explaining his hitting philosophy and and kind of how he built his swing. And I think he mentions in that, and I've seen Alan Nathan and some of the physics guys talk about like in order to make uh, as tr- solid a contact with the bat and the ball as possible, you have to be swinging at a little bit of an incline. I don't know exactly the measurement. But I think it's something like a couple degrees where you have to be swinging up at the ball because the ball is coming down. And so if you swing level, you will not make 
contact with the barrel of the bat and the ball um, as as ideally as if you're swinging up to match the downward plane of the pitch. Okay. All right. So we don't necessarily – you don't know the precise number, but it's no. somewhere there. And Josh Donaldson knows it. Uh, I don't know if he knows the exact number. Uh, something like a couple degrees. I think it's like okay, two or right. three or something. Like you're, you're swinging, like obviously depending on the location of the pitch, your launch angle has to change. But you're trying to swing up at a couple of degrees uh, from from the downward plane of the pitch. Okay. All right. Uh, I think that's all I have. I think this is the second of- second week in a row where we should have just had Alan Nathan on. <laughs> You know, he he. Maybe we should just make him a full time guest on on Fangraphs Audio. There's been some. Uh, I've been receiving slowly like links to studies yeah. regarding. It's really been fascinating to watch how like this like throwaway conversation you and I had on the podcast has led to this really fascinating discussion between these people much smarter than us. Much smarter than us, and I. Yeah. But I actually still can't. I actually don't know what the conclusion is because I feel like I've seen a couple of different examples. I think okay. from what I've seen, and I haven't seen all the tweets to you, but I've seen some of them, uh, is that uh, the hand has to be going at least as fast as the ball would, in order for there to be to maintain contact. And after I thought about it some more, I'm like, well, it's not that different than riding in a car, right? Like if a car is going 60 miles an hour, you are also going 60 miles an hour. Otherwise, you would be like through the windshield. So, <laughs> hey, uh, wait, was it not I who said it must be Yeah, no, right. I, I think like in retrospect, I think you're right. Like the hand has to be going at the same oh, velocity so as the ball. You say that. Otherwise, the, the hand and the ball would disconnect from each other. Right. Right. If your car stops suddenly. Right. Then you will go through the windshield. You will go through the windshield. <laughs> yeah, right. And so at a certain level, it is – because when you choose to – when you choose to release the ball, right, then you are – it's not that your hand is stopping, but it's – it's well, it is It is slowing down on that one trajectory of velocity, right? right? Yeah. Because I – now, unless – again, unless you launch, launch your arm off from the shoulder, <laughs> it's not going to keep going in that direction. Right. And so even though the tip of it is still technically traveling at that speed, it's not going – it's not going, say – 90 miles per hour towards home plate anymore. Right. And in fact, once it's headed straight down, it's going I mean, it's going zero degrees towards home plate. It really happens quickly. And so, um, and so I get, you know, obviously the, the uh, moment where you release the, the ball is, is essential. I mean, that's essential anyway. Um, I wonder how many, like, Ephra starting from the hand, I'm going to, this is just another <laughs> instance of musing on, on physics that it was that it's not helpful. I wonder, like, from the point at which you release it as a pitcher, yeah. I wonder, like, if you cha- if you release it essentially like an inch later than you usually do. I wonder what the equivalency is to like to feet by the time it reaches home plate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I don't know the answer. I mean, it turns you, but like, there, there are some pitchers you see who don't necessarily, and I'm sure, like, you know, when Eric Longenegan is scouting guys, he sees it. You know, even more pronounced, the guys who just don't really have a feel for that at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got nothing to add. This is like uh, another one of the conversations where I'm just out of my depth. One of the most frustrating moments, and it occurs in every game. It's just a question of how often it occurs. Is the is the non-competitive pitch? I don't know if you remember. I think last year, when he's still writing for us, August Fagerstrom. Wrote a post on non-competitive pitches and yeah. how many like each pitcher threw. It was really cool and like it's kind of like if you like sort it in a certain way, it's essentially it's a, like a list of all the best pitchers. The best pitchers throw the most competitive pitches. It's true. Which makes, which Do you want to hear sense. a fun August Fingerson story? 
Sure, yeah. Uh, I think it was it uh, Saturday. I got a text from August, and he said it's April fifteenth when he sends me the text. He says, "I just remembered that taxes are a thing. How do I get my W two <laughs> on April fifteenth? That's not a, that's not the best day to remember, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's better than on April sixteenth, I guess. Although this year the filing deadline is April eighteenth, so he's fine, right. and the IRS won't haul him away. But I just thought right. it was fun. Like uh, August, I guess, I'm a super smart guy. I really like him. Super happy for his success. Uh, yeah, but August Fagerstrom did not remember the taxes were a thing until tax day. Now, he, now actually taxes are on August 18th this year. Is that to accommodate Patriots Day? Uh, I think, it, yeah, cause it's like, so the 15th was a weekend, so they don't, when it falls on a weekend, then they push it to the next work day, but then the work day was Patriots Day, so then they push right. it to the next non-holiday. Where is, pa- where is Patriots Day celebrated? Uh, I know it's celebrated in Massachusetts. <laughs> Wait, is it celebrated everywhere? I believe so. It's a holiday. It's, oh, not like it better, just, it's not a federal holiday, but it's a it's a holiday. It's a holiday in a bunch of places. Do you yeah. want to know the places? Sure. Oh, this is this is how Wikipedia phrases it, and this is I've never heard this before. It's celebrated in Massachusetts, Maine, and Wisconsin, and it's encouraged in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that before. Okay, this conversation started this. Uh, this conversation started with a discussion of uh, – well, it was not a discussion. I immediately deflected the conversation away from the game I attended between Northeastern and, and the College of Charleston. And um, I, I began by asking asking you if you knew what player was from Northeastern. You, you did not know, but Carlos Pena, we just started talking about launch angle, et cetera. We talked about maybe reverse engineering launch angles for certain batters, but um, – I don't know how we do that, and I don't need to talk about that anymore. What I would like to ask you is, do you know the best player slash really only major leaguer to come out of the College of Charleston? I do not. Brett Gardner. Oh, okay. Good for him. Yeah, yeah also good for him. Yeah. Is the College of Charleston in Charleston, West Virginia, or Charleston, South Carolina? I believe South Carolina, yeah. Oh, the better Charleston. I think, yes, so. I think so. Yeah, I've been to both. I, uh, my data points would suggest that they are not comparable. Right. Yeah. I think I believe it is the College of Charleston located in Charleston, South Carolina. And Brett Gardner is the best player to come out of there. He he seems like, yeah, given his skill set, he's like the type of player the type of successful player who probably came from a school that does not is not considered a baseball powerhouse. Right. Yeah, he he was kind of like the Kevin Kiermeyer of his time, where it was like uh you know, a guy who came up as like, Yeah, he's an interesting prospect. He's got some speed, we think he can play defense and then like he gets to the big league, he's like, Ah, this guy's pretty good. And what do you if, so what do you think Carlos Pena is? What it, it, I mean he's also of this time I mean obviously Brett Gardner's of this time too. But well, like, what would he Carlos have been? Pena was a first round pick, wasn't he? I, I think that may that sounds familiar, yeah. I mean, he was at least a very top prospect. Like, infamously, I remember when Alex Rodriguez left to join the Texas Rangers because they offered him $250 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of his justifications, it's not about the money, was like he watched a video of Carlos Pena's swing and got really excited about the organization's long-term future, Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, maybe he really liked Carlos Pena's swing. I'm assuming it was more about the $250 million. I don't think Northeastern's had a lot of first-round draft picks. Probably not. But you said he was the only major league player to come from there. Well, not the only major league player, but the only really good major league player. Adam Odovina also went there. Oh, he's pretty good. Yeah. 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 That Rocky not... bullpen is surprisingly excellent after being terrible last year. Right. And I think Mike Dunn's actually pitching really well. Yeah, he? he is. So we made yeah. fun of the Rockies for requiring Mike Dunn, and he's just striking everybody out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> it didn't work out too well. Uh, all right. Well, yeah. So we really got to the meat of the conversation with Carlos... 
Carlos Pena and Brett Gardner. Let me ask you though something about let me ask you about some people who are actually hitting home runs in the major leagues in the year 2017. Well, that would be, be everybody. A lot of people. Uh, I, let me ask you about someone in, in whom I'm keenly interested, which is Eric Thames. Yeah. Eric Thames says, well, I don't know how many he's told. I know he hit five in four days. So he has six now, yeah. He, he has six. the majors with six home runs. Right. And um, yeah, he's already been worth roughly a win. Yeah. He's earned his 2017 salary. If he blew out his ACL tomorrow, the Brewers would be like, well, that was worth it. <laughs> well, and he's only owed $16 million total over total, two yeah, years. Right, yeah. For three he, years. At this point, he was on pace to earn his entire three-year contract by the All-Star break. <laughs> yeah. And even even if he what regresses to what simply what the projections said about him. Which were quite optimistic, to be honest. Which were, right, yeah. which seemed seemed quite op- yeah, optimistic, right. surely. Yeah. So, so a couple of things are going on. His early season success, and the, the, essentially like the the win he's banked already, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it leads to a couple of questions. One which is, and you mentioned the projections were very optimistic. The projections largely based in this particular case on his performance in Korea. Right. And so on the one hand, you say this player is coming over from Korea after failing to, uh, you know, it's, it's not that he was a a horrible player. He just was not a he was not a major league player really when he was in the States before. Right. I mean he got a bunch of plate appearances and they didn't go particularly well. Right. Um he he but then he went to Korea and then the projection said he's gonna be quite good when he comes back, especially offensively. And what he's done so far, again, like even if he was like merely average this the season, like it would be good. Uh what I, I don't know. What is this? Just like essentially like another data point pointing towards the efficacy of uh, translations from foreign leagues to the to the majors. Yeah, I mean, I think like the interesting thing with Thames is he always had power, right? Like this was this was his carrying tool. He was, uh, you know, it's a guy who hit tremendous home runs. He's in crazy good shape. Like, uh, you know, he's always been really strong. The problem in his major league career before this year is that he couldn't control the strike zone. He didn't walk and he struck out a ton. So he was kind of like Javier Baez without the defense. <laughs> You're like, well, what I like about Javier Baez is the defense that occasionally runs into a home run. Uh, but if you take away the defense, you're not that excited about putting that guy in the lineup. But then he went to Korea and he seemingly, over there at least, figured out the strike zone. But that was the thing that no one was so sure about how much it would come over is, you know, was the fact that he was getting walks in Korea just because he was like, you know, the god hitter of Korea and like no mm-hmm. one wanted to pitch to him uh, and then he would face major league pitchers who would actually be able to get him out with good stuff and he would swing through it again and run a 35% strikeout rate and like this is kind of the Joey Gallo problem right like Joey Gallo has Eric Thames kind of power but to this point in the major leagues 40% strikeout rate so he's had a trouble holding down jobs um, so if you saw Thames as like that kind of high strikeout guy who didn't control the strike zone you know, there's not a lot of upside there for a guy who also doesn't play a valuable defensive position. But so far in the early season, I think Thames is like a 23% strikeout rate or something. Like when you combine this kind of power with average contact, uh, that's scary. Do you think there's? I'm sure there's no answer, unfortunately. But let's uh, speculate wildly. Do you think there's anything to this possible theory? Right, Eric Thames is trying to survive as a major league hitter, uh, but he's not. Right, as you're saying, he's probably not taking walks. Um, I mean, he, he only, I think he, he he walked less than six percent of his plate appearances as a major leaguer before. Yeah, he goes over there, and maybe pitchers are pitching around him a little bit, 
And he says, oh, I really need to exhibit patience here. And then he starts um, he starts only maybe swinging at those pitches that he can uh, really do damage to. And then he realizes that this is the approach that he ought to have utilized when he was in the majors. And so he undergoes a transformation. Waiting, he's, he's more patient, more selective. And so when he comes back to the majors, he essentially understands the value of swinging at the pitch to which he can do the most damage. Yeah, I'm mean, gonna think that's reasonable, but I think the probably the bigger question it wasn't just the walks, right? Like the, you know, Joey Gallo also draws walks. Russell Brandon drew walks. Like there have been good Carlos Pena drew walks. Uh, there have been good power hitting guys with high walk rates before that haven't had really long successful careers. Pena was fine, but he wasn't a star. He didn't kind of live up to his prospect hype when he was considered a top five prospect in baseball, or maybe even the number one prospect at one time. Um, the question really is contact, like. Can a guy who swings like this with the kind of full force, uh, Eric Fame swings really hard. Like he, he's really trying to hit the crap out of the ball every time he swings. Can he make enough contact in order to make that power useful? And, uh, so far in 2017, the answer has been resoundingly yes, uh, with the caveat that, uh, a lot of his power came against the Cincinnati Reds, who have one of the worst pitching staffs in baseball. Okay. That's, uh, the, so is this now force us to turn our attention to the Korean League even, uh, I don't know, even more so, and say, oh, well, Eric Thames was quite successful there, and he appears to be bringing that success back to the States, um, and therefore now there's sort of another, there's an air of even greater legitimacy to the Korean Baseball League. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Young Hong Kong coming over helped, uh, and Thames coming over and doing this. If he keeps doing anything, you know, he's not going to keep doing this. He has like a 250 WRC plus. Like this is, right. you know, no, no, right. on yeah. a hot streak. But, uh, yeah, if he has a, a strong year, I think teams will be more aggressive and looking for Korean hitters. Uh, I think the, maybe even the more interesting test case will be Jang Wan Young. I believe I said that right. The third baseman slash now maybe left fielder who came over for, and join the Giants on a minor league contract, despite the fact that he hit really well in Korea. There was not a lot of optimism about his success. Uh, but Jarrett Parker, the Giants starting left fielder, just broke his ankle. He's out for two months. The Giants already were thin in the outfield. Um, they've got Yuong working in the outfield in the minor leagues. Their other options are BJ Upton, or Melvin Upton, Michael Morse, and Justin Ruggiano. Um, so I would be interested to see if Wong gets a shot in left field for the Giants and if he hits as a guy, you know, at the same time Thames is hitting and Kong hit and, you know, he got a minor league deal, I think we might see a, a market correction where teams say, huh, we have been underestimating Korean hitters. Okay. Let me ask you about another player who's hitting a lot of home runs, and that is Trey Mancini. Yeah. He hit four. He's hit four in just 24 plate appearances. Um. I don't he hit, hit like three in like fifteen plate appearances last year. Yeah, can you? So he's got seven in less than forty plate appearances. Right. He has a slugging percentage of a thousand. He has I an think, ISO. I, I think I saw something that said he's the fastest player in terms of home runs and at bats uh, to seven home runs ever. Ever, right? Like no one has ever hit seven home runs in fewer than forty plate appearances. Can you just their say their first seven home runs? Just tell me some things about Trey Mancini. Tell uh, what, like unload your Trey Mancini file. If you have seen an Orioles hitter. 
mm-hmm. he looks like the rest of them. So they have Chris Davis and Mark Trumbo and Pedro Alvarez and Seth Smith, and like the Orioles have a hitter type, right? This is yeah. Trey Mancini fits their hitter type. He's a big, strong first baseman playing out of position. They moved him to the outfield because Chris Davis is in his way, just like Chris Davis is in Mark Trumbo's way. Uh, maybe they shouldn't have resigned Chris Davis. Is really the story of this whole thing. But uh, he's a big, powerful. Uh, right-handed hitter who doesn't control the strike zone, and his upside is probably Mark Trumbo. Okay, he, with, he with a le- like he, not a high likelihood of reaching it. And I don't think he hit quite this. I mean, he, he, he didn't hit for this kind of power in the minors. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I would like to make. Uh, do you know that sometimes I play the role of imposter scout at Fangraphs.com? Yeah, yeah. I would like to make an an observation, an un or a barely educated observation about Trey Mancini's swing, which okay. I have seen now at least four times because I've lot I've watched all his home runs. He seems to turn his wrists over relatively early in his swing, like only just after it's cleared the plate. I think that he does not have a very – you know, we talked about like keeping your bat in the in the path of the ball. I think that his path is like it's only in position to make good contact with the ball over a very uh, small short, short area. Short period of time, yeah. Short period of time. Yeah. So my guess is that whatever his swing does – it's designed to create a great deal of force over a short period of time, but it, um, but just the way he he really bra- he turns his wrist over so early, I have to think that he's uh, not doing himself any favors in terms of contact. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see kind of as this you know now that those like you know zeb trackers and hit hit trackers and uh even at the youth levels now people are seeing like hey if i do this i hit the ball at this velocity and if i do this i hit the ball like as people are gathering more data not just at the major league level but all through all ranks of baseball to see how many people choose for this kind of high risk high variance approach i mean like Giancarlo Stanton's kind of the same thing, not that his wrists roll over super early, but like he swings really hard in order to maximize damage on contact, and he trades contact for that. Obviously, most people are not the size or strength of Giancarlo Stanton, so you can't just be like, well, Giancarlo Stanton does it, I'm gonna do it. But like, you know, in this, like the Cesar Hernandez piece I wrote today, Cesar Hernandez was 5'10 and was a buck 60, now he's put on some strength, so he's up to a buck 80. But, like, he's still a smaller guy, and he decided, you know, I'm gonna try and hit the ball harder. Like, I wonder how many major league players could just choose to try and hit the ball harder at the cost of some contact and be better hitters overall. Do you think there's some do you think that maybe there's less it it it's more common now that that decision is easier to make maybe for some players? Yeah. Because I think the the, the, ter- the tyranny of batting average is completely dead. So where even 10 years ago a guy who struck out 150 or 200 times and hit 230 uh he was going to be routinely mocked. But, uh, well, yeah, I feel like I like maybe I feel like like Aaron or not Aaron Dunn, uh, Adam Dunn, like taking taking off the last weekend of the season so he didn't yeah. break the strikeout record. Right. It yeah. might not have been done, but it, it might, I think it was someone who did that. Yeah, I think it was Adam Dunn actually. To avoid that, because yeah. he, the uh, he didn't want to break the two hundred and twelve strikeouts in a year, or whatever it was. Right, but strikeouts are an all time high every yeah. year now. Yeah. Like the, so, the striking out has become an acceptable way for your bat to end, where it used to be. <laughs> I think we've talked about this on the podcast, right? Like when you're young, strikeouts are actually a pretty good way to identify talent level. Like if you're a seven year old who can't hit the ball, right. uh, you're like, oh, you can't play. And like the guy who can actually put the bat on the ball is probably your best player, but that's not true when you're 26. Yeah, it actually only really it, it seems to break down the most at the major league level. Right. Yeah. It's um, a filtering I, tool that works probably pretty well at the amateur level, but, but right. a lot, and now, lot less like when, well at the pro level. 
Like when Cato, uh, when Chris Mitchell's Cato projection system, like, identifies players. Yeah. And of course, this is, I mean, th- there's, this has been, this has been derived empirically from, you know, 20 years of prospect numbers. Right. Is strikeout rate for pitchers. Yeah. Is the best way to identify good pitchers. And then for batters, like, strikeout rate, you know, preventing strikeouts is really the number one tool to to seeing which guys are good and which aren't. Is this where you uh, flaunt Adam Frazier's batting line? Oh, sorry. What, what is he doing so far? Uh, he went like three for four with a homer yesterday. So now he's up to like three forty, four ten, five fifty or something. Huh. Yeah. Oh, I, I hadn't noticed. That's you hadn't thing. noticed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Frazier started off the season pretty well. Is actually is he getting sort of uh, starters type playing time? Yeah, I think they've had like uh, Gregory Polanco's had some shoulder things, and then like Josh Harrison's had some lack lack of talent things. Um, and Yonko Kong's not around, so they've got more infield of bats to go around. So, yeah, right. Well, I, I feel like at the same time last year it was unclear who was going to get because they had too many infielders. I think, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that happens uh, quickly. There's no Adam Frazier is like the exact guy that I don't know. He seems to, he's like perfect for an organization because his you know modest offensive skills, right? And he can be, he can basically play any position. Yep. But he also don't you you don't have to, I mean he didn't pay him a lot. No one paid him a lot. They didn't draft him until the sixth round. Yeah. So valuable piece. That's the nice thing. That's what I like. That's why I'm not bummed out. You know, there tends to be in the prospect community a lot of uh, suspicion attached to like second baseman, right? Yeah. Yep. As prospects. Right. But a second baseman is just the guy who could probably play the corner outfield pretty well. Uh, well, Willie Calhoun, maybe not. But yeah, I mean, in general, it's probably Willie, a decent Willie, athlete. It's still an up the middle player. Right. Willie Calhoun, it should be said, is a, is a prospect, is a weird prospect in yeah. the Dodgers system. He's one of my favorites because he's so unique. Yeah, he can, I mean, he appears to be, just on like his hitting merits alone, I mean, one of the, one of the top prospects in the yeah. minor leagues at this point, right? I, I think like the, probably the best way I've ever heard Willie Calhoun described was Fat Howie Kendrick. Because <laughs> it's the same offensive skill set, yeah. But uh, maybe like better better paint selection. Like Kendrick's walking everything coming up through the minor leagues. Yeah, I think but he, like, he, it's like plus fifty pounds or something. Right, and he uh, so like he plays second now, but he may not even really be able to play first. Like it's not really clear where he's right. Gonna be. He, like he might not be able to be a legitimate major league fielder anywhere. Yeah, I was watching video and then of you have a five seven DH, which is weird. <laughs> I was watching video of. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, today Eric Longenegan published his Rangers list. Yeah. And uh, I was watching a video of Jeremy Profar. Uh-huh. Jerickson's younger brother, who looks like Jerickson plus 50 pounds. He's a bigger person. And he just has a weird body. I didn't want to say it in print because I did not want it to, to be uh, attached to my name. But he's got a dumpy body. Yeah. He's got a dumpy now body. Now you've looks- said it uh, vocally. Yeah, but yeah, it, it doesn't stick to you as I, hard. I hope somebody uh, prints out a transcript of this and sends it to Jeremy Profile. No, I don't want them to because he's actually the guy I chose as my guy for Eric's list. Okay, well, maybe I, they'll send the whole write-up then. Well, I, I hope they do because he does the thing that is good to do, which is to be able to hit. Makes a lot of contact. He's got decent uh, power on contact. He And actually, like his, like his Clay Davenport numbers for defense at second and third base haven't been so bad. It's just um it just you see his body and you're like that's not that's not a body that people in the major leagues have. He's dumpy. He looks like a guy who 
was in a frat for six years and came out on the other end and you're like, oh, maybe you were fit when you went in. But, but <laughs> you, now, you gained the freshman 15 and then the sophomore 15 and the yeah. junior 15. Yeah, he just looks like he's been eating – he's just had like beer and tacos steadily for a bunch <laughs> of years. And that's what it did to his body. But like he has all the other skills of like a, of like a baseball – good baseball player. So. Right. Um, there's actually really cool if you look up Jerry Pro- or Jeremy Provar. I was just looking up video, you know, trying to find from his minor league career. But there's someone posted a video from when he – it must have been like he was 16 years old. He's playing – it's a dirt – it's a game on a dirt field in in the Dominican. Or no, it must be Curacao actually. Sorry. Uh, correct, correct. I will correct myself. He's from Curacao. Yeah. Um, uh, it was cool though. And he hit the snot out of a ball is what I mean to say. Uh Okay. This conversation's done. This is a long one. Yeah. Oh, except for if anyone is interested in playing uh, playing along at home as an imposter scout, uh, you could do some work with like fielding 101 scouting by watching some of the clips from your post, Dave Cameron. Uh, your post about Matt Adams yeah. attempting to field, <laughs> attempting to. Because I always wondered, like, will I know? Yeah, what's like, will a, I know what does a twenty left fielder look like? Yeah, like yeah. will I like yeah. do I know really what it you know what a, a sort of an unplayable glove looks like in the corner outfield? Yeah. And you don't really see it in the majors that often. Like no, maybe if you watch you see it in St. Louis right now. Yeah, right. I mean, but like if, there's some video in which, and as you mentioned, it's not Matt Adams' fault. Yeah, right. He, making, he shouldn't be. He should not have been asked to do this. This is the Cardinals' fault. Right, and but and Matt Adams. To his credit, is trying. Yeah, right. Absolutely. No, no and, major league player would be like, "Hey, do you want to be in the lineup?" No, I don't want nah. to be. In the lineup. Like, I'm not going to. No, I'm going to. I'm going to say no, and I'm going to sit on the bench so I don't embarrass myself. Like, right. But the, the fact of the matter is, like, when he's going after fly balls, like he just he takes bad paths, yeah. and he doesn't have any kind of athleticism to compensate for his right. errors in judgment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's like it's a little bit painful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you wanted to get a sense of what, like, a normal person would look like playing left field in the majors, that's kind of what it looks like. Right. Yeah. Someone who's just untrained at tracking fly balls. Yeah. Which is what yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what Jeremy Profar looks like in left field, <laughs> but it might, might be somewhere. All right. Uh, we're done with this program. Dave, you and I are about to record our, our Blue Jays podcast, but we're, we're not going to do that, right? We're not going to. We're going to stop first. You, you have to find that one separately. Yeah, I don't actually don't know how to find it. It's fine, though. It's fine. Okay. Hey, well, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Uh, that has been uh, Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.